Morning. So from the beginning of his uh, letter, Peter reminds us that when we come to faith in Christ, we are born into a living hope. Because one day Christ will return. We are born into an inheritance that is kept safe for us. We are born for a salvation that will be revealed to us at the last time in the future. All of these things point to the future. All of them are future-oriented. But the future is also now. The future is also now. Peter tells us in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that even though we suffer grief and all kinds of trials, because we have come to know and love and follow Jesus, we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? Because that future reality that we are promised, that future reality is already reaching back to us. Peter says, for we are receiving the, resi- the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Last week, Peter began to give us three of several exhortations that spring from this hope and this joy that we have. Put your hope in Jesus' return. Be holy in all you do. And live your lives in reverent fear of God. And I told you last week that I can't always get to everything that I would like to say on a Sunday morning. And sometimes, uh, what, something I wish I said comes to me a day or two too late. So, I want to say a few more words about what it means to live in reverent fear of God. I said last week that to live in reverent fear of God is not to be afraid of God. It is an exhortation, exhortation not to be careless in our relationships with God. We are to listen to God. And we are to live our lives as obedient children. But I was reminded of something else this week. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, we are given a truth to live by that many of us, whether we've uh, spent time, a whole lot of time in church or not, many of us have likely heard at some point or another. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's subtle, but it is profound. The fear of the Lord is not the ending of wisdom, it's not the fullness of wisdom. It's not the indication that we've already become as wise as we can ever be. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in Proverbs 9, the lady wisdom, she's always portrayed as as a woman, the lady wisdom wisdom calls out to foolish people to turn away from their folly. She extols the virtues and the benefits of living wisely. For the foolish, for the immoral, for the godless, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. That is, it is wise to come to that place where we begin to understand the need to repent of our foolishness and our sin. But it is not the end of the journey. It's just the beginning. Peter felt he had, a, had to make a, a strong statement in his situation, perhaps because they were younger in the faith. And early on, everybody was younger in the faith. Or perhaps because he sensed they needed to be reminded of something they had forgotten. So he tells them to live out their time as foreigners, as exiles, as strangers in reverent fear. Do not succumb to the spirit of the age. Do not succumb to the spirit of Babylon. But the Apostle John says something a little different. In a a larger section of 1 John chapter 4, John says a whole lot about God's love for us, uh, our love for God, and our love for others. And then, these things of course are all intertwined. But then in verse 18, he says this, 1 John 4, 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. 
The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So we might say that if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then love, love for God, love for our neighbors, love is the fullness of wisdom. Love is where things are headed, not fear. Fear is the beginning of wisdom, but love is its completion. And in fact, in today's passage, Peter will move in the direction of love himself. He, he doesn't specifically speak here about love for God, but rather love for one another. And the two are intimately connected, as we'll see here shortly. He writes this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. And because loving one another is central to the faith... We can go to several other places in our New Testaments to see it. Right before Jesus is arrested during Holy Week, Jesus gives his first disciples what we refer to as the, his, his farewell discourse. We find it in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17. And in this discourse, Jesus teaches a lot of important things, and one of them being the importance of love for one another. So John, in John 14, 13, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The world will know that we follow Jesus, he says, if we love one another, as Jesus has loved us. Not by our preaching and teaching, not by our worship or evangelistic efforts, but by our love for one another. The thing that matters most when it comes to the mission of the church is how well we treat one another. And you remember perhaps one of the most well-known passages in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13, which is often called the love chapter. And there the Apostle Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels... But do not have love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. But if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. The message translation says, So no matter what I say, what I believe, or what I do, I am bankrupt without love. I am bankrupt without love. How we treat one another in this congregation, in person or online, matters to the Apostle Paul. It matters to the Apostle Peter. It matters to Jesus, and it matters to the Apostle John. In fact, immediately following the passage I read earlier from 1 John 4.18, where he speaks of uh, there being no fear in love, John says this in verses 19 to 21. We love because he, God, first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have not seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. For us to, to love one another, we must be in relationship with one another. We must value those relationships and we must nourish them. And so we can confidently add to Peter's first three exhortations to put our hope in Christ's return, to be holy as God is holy, and to live our lives in reverent fear. We can add to those three a fourth one today, love one another deeply or fervently. And that word deeply is found in only two other places in our New Testament. 
carries with it a sense of straining towards something, an intensity. It is used to describe how the believers in Acts, the book of Acts chapter 12, verse 5, were praying earnestly for the apostle Peter to be released from prison. And you may remember that story. He was miraculously released that night. The other place we find the word is in Luke 22, verse 44. The night Jesus was, was betrayed, we find him praying earnestly, fervently in the garden, so much so that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So the love that we are called to show one another as follower of Je- followers of Jesus is ardent. It is in, in intense. It is earnest. It is consistent. It does not give up. Back to our passage. Peter then gives us the reason we are now able to love one another so deeply. 1 Peter 1.23 For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. First, you've been born again, Peter says. He's taking things all the way back to verse 3, where he talks about God. Say, God in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We love because we have been born again. We love because we are new creations. We are not who we used to be. We sometimes act like we are who we used to be, but we are actually not who we used to be. We were born again, Peter goes on to say, of imperishable seed. That may well be a reference back to Jesus' parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Some seed is scattered on good ground. Some seed is scattered on uh, bad ground, bad soil. The seed scattered in the good soil grows and sprouts and produces a huge crop. See, the seed is always good. It's the soil that is questionable. And the seed, Jesus says in Mark 4, 14, the seed is the word. Peter then confirms this by saying that our new birth happens through the living and enduring word of God. Peter then quotes from the Greek translation of Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, about the nature of this word, the word of God. In Isaiah's context, the word of God is the promise to his people that, that God will bring them out of exile, that God will end their punishment, that God will comfort them. This word, this promise from the mouth of the Lord, Isaiah says, will stand forever. Peter quotes Isaiah to demonstrate his claim that the word of the Lord, the word of God, is enduring. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. For, quoting Isaiah, all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Now in the New Testament, there are three ways to hear this phrase, the word of God. It can mean scripture. The Bible is the word of God. It can mean Jesus, who is the word made flesh in John 1, 14. It can be the spoken word about Jesus, the good news about Jesus that Jesus saves us. And in this case, Peter is referring to the third one, the evangelistic word, the the good news that brought them to faith, as the last sentence um, in um, verse 25 makes clear, and this is the word that was preached to you. And this is the word that was preached to you. The word of God that proclaimed that God's people would return from exile in Isaiah 40 is the trailer of coming attractions for the word that will proclaim the good news about Jesus. The seed that was scattered on good soil. The evangelistic word Peter's first readers heard and responded to in faith. 
The very word that brought them into a new birth and a living hope and the promise of a victorious future, that word now gives them reason and resources to live holy lives in Babylon and to love one another deeply. And right at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 2, and remember in the original documents, the manuscripts that we get our New Testament books from, there are no chapter and verse uh, divisions at all. But right at the beginning of chapter 2, Peter has that word, therefore, again. He ties what he's about to say back to the fact that we have experienced new birth in Christ and that the word of God endures forever. So, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. All these things that we are to rid ourselves of are things that corrupt community and obstruct our ability to love one another deeply from the heart. If we harbor malice toward one another, if we deceive one another, if we are hypocritical, if we are pretending to be something we are not, if we slander one another, if we are envious of one another, we simply cannot love one another. And a community in which these things are the norm is not drawing anyone to Jesus. Instead, Peter says, crave pure spiritual milk. Now, in other places in Scripture, the idea of spiritual milk is often a criticism. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for example, Paul tells his readers that they, they can only handle milk because they're spiritual babies. They're mere infants in Christ. They're not ready for anything else. But in 1 Peter, he's not using the metaphor in a critical way. Rather, the focus is on the craving. The focus is on the craving. If they are going to be able to rid themselves of the things that damage community and destroy their ability to love one another, then they must crave the things that will help them grow. They must hunger for the things of God, the things that make for transformation. Several years ago, Willow Creek Community Church was considered the model for church growth and mission now, a lot of sad things have happened since then that have knocked them and their pastor down from that place of influence. But before any of that became known, Willow Creek conducted a massive survey um, on their congregation, the purpose of which was to evaluate how well they were doing in, in Jesus' calling to make disciples of every, nations, every nation. Willow Creek had proven to the world that they knew how to attract people, that they knew how to grow a large church, and even that they knew how to bring people into, into faith, into the kingdom, but were they doing what Jesus called them to do when he told us to go and make disciples? Now, to their credit, they tried to find out how they were doing, and to their credit, they published the findings. They didn't have to do that. And they found that they were not making the disciples they had hoped. I'm sure many people were fully formed disciples, but they had hoped for better. Furthermore, this was not just a study of Willow Creek. The study eventually also included hundreds of churches and tens of thousands of surveys in churches all across the theological spectrum. So to the question, how do people grow in their faith, they came up with four ingredients. If we want to grow to maturity in the faith, if we want to be fully transformed people, people who are ever transforming, they said, according to this study, we must regularly do these four things. Engage with scripture, spend time in prayer and solitude, share life with friends and mentors, and serve others in the mission. These things are not earth-shattering, friends. Most of us could have come up with these without a study. 
But these things, these four things, rose to the top of this reveal study that Willow Creek did. And, and each of them take some individual initiative on our part, right? We, the church, we can provide space, we can provide some resources for these things, but if they're, if they're going to happen in your life and in mine, the intent must come from each of us. And intention is all about craving this pure spiritual milk and drinking it. That word translated as crave, uh, just like it is in English, means to long for, to desire, to intensely crave possession of. It can even be translated as lust. It takes us to our fifth exhortation, not lust, but nourish a hunger for God. Nourish a hunger for God in the things that make for transformation. Crave regular time in scripture. Crave time in solitude and prayer. Crave time in service to others. Crave time worshiping together with sisters and brothers in Christ. And crave time sharing our lives with one another on this journey. And if all that sounds a little overwhelming to you, I want to remind you that first and foremost, the grace of God is sufficient for wherever you are on your journey of faith. I want to remind you that we can trust the slow work of God. This is not a race. It's a pilgrimage. I have told this story again. I'm going to tell it. I've told this before. I'm going to tell it again. Uh, it, it sticks in minds, and I think it helps. When my boys, Asher and Micah, were young, five and three, Asher's five, Micah was three, they were like brothers who compete at everything. And um, we had taught them they don't have to compete. It's not a contest. And this eventually worked its way into one of their heads, uh, they were climbing the stairs one day and Asher was running ahead of his brother Micah and Micah said, it's not a contest, Asher. It's not a contest. This is not a contest. Spiritual formation and transformation is not a race. It's a pilgrimage. And we all have to travel it at our own pace. Some of these things in the Willow Creek study we can and should do in solitude as well as corporately we engage in scripture we read it we meditate on it we study it with others and on our own i recommend both we can pray with others and on our own i recommend both solitude in a time and in quiet open prayer by ourselves can only be done by ourselves in solitude we can even perhaps serve some way on our own or with others, but we cannot share life with others all on our own. We cannot share life with other brothers and sisters all on our own. We can only do that together in community with one another. There's an old African proverb that you may have heard. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go farther, go together. This is true in our lives with God, too. We can engage scripture on our own. We can pray on our own. We can serve on our own. But we cannot share life with others on our own. For that, we need one another. We need community. That, if that African proverb is true, and I think it is, then we will go farther in these things when we do so in community. This is why we launched life groups late last fall. We believe in life groups because in and through them, we can go farther and we can go deeper together. We can go farther and we can go deeper together. We're not currently placing people in life groups, but if you go to our website, to the address there that's on the screen, 
let us know you're interested. We, we might have a spot for you, or we can be prepared at least for your interest later this summer when we do a push to get some more people into life groups. And if you're not currently interested or able to be a part of a life group because of your life stage or whatever, no worries. But I do encourage you to make sure that if you can't be in a life group, you should have people in your life. People in your life, relationships in and through which you can share life with them and grow in Christ together. We are not meant to do this all on our own. What we are talking about is a hunger for God. A hunger for God. We are talking about actively making room in our lives for the things that nourish that hunger and satisfy it. And that's the key, isn't it? This, this can sound a bit like just another list of things we have to do. But the truth is, if you want to eat, you have to do a little work. Right? The, the reward is worth it, of course. Whether, whether you're barbecuing out back, cooking a meal in the kitchen, or cleaning up after dinner, or going out to eat, it's all going to take some work to some degree. But it's worth it. What one step can you take today or this week? Is there, is there a step you could take toward loving your sisters and brothers in Christ? Is there a relationship that needs your attention in repentance or forgiveness or reconciliation? Or simply to care for someone who needs care? Or what step might you take to nourish your hunger for God in terms of these things we talked about? Prayer engaging scripture, serving, sharing life with others. Whether we know it or not, or admit it or not, we all hunger for God. We may try to feed that hunger with other things. We may think it's something else, but whatever hungers we have are hungers for and about God and what God can give us at heart. How can you nourish that hunger in your own life this day, this week. Would you join with me in a moment of silent prayer and then I'll close this. God, you know the hearts of every single person joining us online or in this room. You know how we may have felt when we heard all these lists of things that we are to do, these exhortations, these findings in the study. Lord, I pray that if there's any guilt, any condemnation, that you would remove it. But I pray, oh God, if there's a step we can take, that you would show us not just the work that's going to be required, but the gift that it is, the blessing that it can be the transformation that it offers and the love with which you want to give us these things and call us to these things. Lord, I ask that you give us the wisdom to know what we are to engage in and when, the faith to trust that you are at work even in the smallest steps we might be able to take and the grace that we need to have on ourselves wherever we might be. And I pray that in and through these things, God, you would make of us a more transformative community a more loving community, a hungrier community for all that you want to give us, God. 
that you would make of us a holy people, a people full of hope, a people, Lord, who may begin by living in fear from you, but move ever more closer to love. God, would you take this time in silence and whatever you've spoken, and would you nourish it in our hearts and draw us to the next step. And may you receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Jesus' name.